In our last session, we talked about the prophet Isaiah as evangelist, bearer of good news, and also how that might seem kind of odd when you read Isaiah, because Isaiah is a bearer not just of good news, but often a bearer of very bad news, news about coming judgment for the sin of the people of God. Now, for the first 12 chapters of the book, this mixture of bad and good news, it's directed toward the people of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel once Israel split, centered on the city of Jerusalem. But in chapter 13, something changes all of a sudden. Isaiah is still prophesying, but his words are no longer about the Jewish people. Well, chapter 22 is about Jerusalem, but other than that one chapter, the next 11 chapters are a series of prophetic oracles focused not on Judah or Jerusalem, but on all the surrounding nations, Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Sudan, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, and Tyre. All of them are the subject of an oracle given to Isaiah. And then after all of those oracles, we come to chapter 24, which is a prophecy about the coming judgment of the whole earth. Now, this is very interesting, all of these oracles, but you've got to wonder, why would Isaiah include oracles and prophecies about all these other nations in a book that's written to Jews? After all, Isaiah isn't prophesying to Moabites or Babylonians or Assyrians or Egyptians here. He's prophesying to the people of Judah. So why include all these oracles to the nations? That's the question that I've been asking myself as I've been reading and reflecting on this part of the book. And I think it's a very important question because I think that the way that we answer that question tells us a lot not only about what these oracles say to the people of Judah, those ancient Jews, but also what these oracles continue to say to us today as well. But now I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Before I start talking about what these oracles have to say to us today, what they might mean for us, I need to say something about what they actually say. What is the content here? Well, first thing, that we should note in reading through these oracles is that they do contain words of hope, even for those pagan nations, even for those people who are the enemies and the oppressors of the people of God. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love them as well. In fact, in chapter 15, in the midst of an oracle describing the coming destruction of Moab, God declares his love for that people. He says, my heart cries out for the people of Moab and for the Moabite refugees who will be displaced because of this coming destruction. And God goes on to actually tell the Jews that they ought to provide shelter and comfort to the Moabites when they come to them during this time of refuge. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. Also in chapter 19, the voice of God speaks through Isaiah, describing the, the coming judgment and destruction of Egypt. 
But that same voice also describes and envisions a future in which Egypt will actually join the people of God in worship of the Lord, worship of Yahweh. And when he, the Lord, will come and redeem the Egyptians, just as he did for his people Israel. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. These words testify to God's unfailing and universal love, even toward the idolatrous oppressors of his people. No doubt they shocked some of Isaiah's original audience, the Jews who heard that God had plans of redemption, even for the Egyptians. But these words don't reflect the primary theme that we find in these oracles, because the primary theme of these oracles is not the mercy that God intends to show to the nations. No, the primary theme that we find here is one of wrath and judgment. That's Isaiah's main message in this section, that judgment is coming, that there will be a day, he says, the day of the Lord, a day of reckoning, when these once proud and powerful nations will be brought to nothing. If you want to get a good sense of what I mean, the character of what's being said here, you just have to pay attention to the very first oracle, the oracle of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. Now, the vision that of Babylon here, this oracle, it begins with the sound of a great army, the army of Yahweh himself, the Lord of armies. Here's what Isaiah says. The Lord of armies is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Now, what Isaiah goes on to describe here, it's a, it's a vision that really should strike fear into the hearts of the Babylonians. He ends up saying that this army that the Lord is bringing, it's the, it's the empire of the Medes, the Medo-Persians who would come and conquer Babylon in the year 539. Isaiah speaks of a day of wrath and judgment and destruction, the day of the Lord. Here's what he says about it. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. And then, after that, he goes on. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Language like that sounds very strange to our modern ears. We don't tend to think of God as the one whose coming should strike fear in the hearts of the wicked or cause the heavens to tremble or the earth to be shaken. We tend to operate with a much kinder, gentler image of God. As the writer Annie Dillard puts it in one of her essays, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. 
Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What Annie Dillard is describing here is the loss among modern Christians of a sense of what the Bible describes as the holiness of God. Now, to say that God is holy is, on the one hand, to say that He is entirely unlike any being in the created universe. God's holiness is His radical otherness. The holy God stands over and against human beings and all other creatures in the created world. The holy God is the God who speaks out of a burning bush and a terrifying whirlwind. He is the one who appears in a pillar of fire and wraps himself in darkness, as Psalm 18 so memorably puts it. Or to borrow a phrase from the Chronicles of Narnia, the holy God is a God who is good, but he is by no means tame. And at the same time, the holiness of God, this, this radical otherness of God, God's transcendence and power, that God's holiness is also his unremitting opposition to all that is evil. That's what it means to speak of God as holy. As the Old Testament scholar John Goldingay puts it, Holiness suggests God's distinctively supernatural, dangerous, almost frightening divine nature, which should make people bow their heads simply because they are creatures, let alone because they are polluted by their wrongdoing. And that's what Annie Dillard has in mind when she talks about the danger of blithely invoking a God who may wake and take offense. And while that may not be an accurate description of our own experience or ideas of God, it does certainly describe the God that we encounter in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the holiness of God is one of the most central themes in the entire book. You can see that in the name that Isaiah often uses to speak of God. Isaiah describes God as the Holy One of Israel. You can see it in the description of Isaiah's own vision of God in chapter six, where he sees God in a vision high and lifted up with a mere piece of his robe, of the train of his robe, filling the entire temple. And in the song that he hears sung by the angelic beings, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As soon as Isaiah encounters this brief glimpse in his vision of the holiness of God, he falls on his face in despair because, as he says, he is a man of unclean lips. That's what he immediately recognizes, dwelling amidst a people of unclean lips. And it's also the holiness of God that explains these numerous oracles of judgment that we find, these oracles against the nations in chapters 13 to 23. The heavens are said to tremble, and the earth is going to be shaken at the coming of the Holy One. 
because God's holiness is also his absolute opposition to all evil and sin. So the coming of the Holy One is a day, as Isaiah says, a day of judgment when the arrogant will be humiliated and the wicked will meet God's just anger. Like I said, this is a rather terrifying vision or a terrifying series of visions. But all of that doesn't really answer the question with which I began this session. Why does Isaiah include these oracles at all? Why tell the people of Judah about the Holy One of Israel and what the Holy One intends to do in relation to the surrounding nations? And how is this related to the good news, that gospel for which Isaiah is so famous? I think that we need to begin with this latter question. How is the holy judgment of God against human wickedness, how is it a good thing? What makes it good news? A lot of people struggle to see how the justice of God can be in any way a good thing. This has long been true. Indeed, we often tend to avoid the idea of God's judgment or His justice entirely. We like to think that the good news of the gospel has nothing to do with God's wrath or anger against sin. Many of us, I think, gravitate toward what the famous American theologian Richard Niebuhr once described as the modern American gospel. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Uh, this gospel without judgment may sound appealing, but such a gospel is in fact no gospel at all. Justice is important. And there's a reason that the Psalms often plead with God to rise up and to bring judgment, to come in judgment. It's because in a world filled with evil and oppression and abuse and cruelty, mere forgiveness is not enough. We need God's holy justice. We need God to set things right. And in these chapters of Isaiah, we learn that this is precisely what the Holy One of Israel intends to do. A day is coming, Isaiah says. A day is coming when blood will be avenged and stolen property will be returned and every wrong that has been done will be made right. And that's why Isaiah includes these oracles in his prophecy to Judah. Not so that the people of Judah can take delight in the downfall of their enemies, no, Isaiah is reminding them that no matter how fearful or no matter how unjust their present circumstances might be, no matter how powerful those other nations may seem, Isaiah's visions remind them that the kings of Babylon and Moab and Assyria and Egypt, they will not have the last word. The Holy One of Israel is the Lord of history, Isaiah is saying and he will set things to right. You know, when I think about this message, about the holiness and justice of God and his sovereign rule over the history of nations, I am reminded of another time in history, another time when it seemed that the day of the Lord had come, that the justice of God was being visited upon a sinful nation. Now, the year was 1865, and the nation was the United States of America. And for the last four years, the nation 
had been torn apart by the bloodiest and the most destructive war in its history. Over 600,000 lay dead. And on April 10th, just one day after General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, Abraham Lincoln delivered his second inaugural address. And it was, a, it was a short speech, and it was appropriately somber in tone. And as he approached the end of his speech, Lincoln began to reflect on how to make theological sense of the tragedy of the war of these past four years. And here's what he said. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, President Lincoln was rightly circumspect in his words here. He was not claiming to have a prophetic vision as Isaiah did, nor to know the precise purposes and plans of God in history. And yet, his outlook on the war was very clearly formed by Old Testament scriptures like these chapters of Isaiah. Because Lincoln knew that no matter how great or proud or powerful nations may seem, no matter how righteous they may appear to themselves, all of them stand under the judgment of God. And Lincoln also knew that the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, is a God who brings justice in His coming. Now, whether or not he was right in suggesting that perhaps the Civil War was an act of judgment for the sin of American slavery, he was certainly right in his conclusion. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That was good news for the people of Judah, and it is good news for us as well.